Hey, Miles, you're going to be gone when I record 73, right? Yeah, I'll be at PAX Prime. Excellent. Wait, what? I mean, I'll miss you and everything, but if you're not here, I get to do an evolution episode. Oh, like a science of mutation thing? No, no, X-Men Evolution, the cartoon, the one I recap. Oh, the early aughts one where they're all in high school and Mystique's the principal. Dude, Mystique is like half the characters on that show. Is she still Nightcrawler's mom? And Rogue's adoptive mom? Yeah, and you know, it's kind of a thing, because as bad a parent as Mystique is in the 616, Evolution Mystique is way worse. I mean, she basically brainwashes and gaslights Rogue nonstop for the first three seasons. Wait, I thought Rogue worked out what was going on with that. There's a whole thing on a cliff, and Mystique turns into an eagle. Oh yeah, yeah, that's season one, episode seven, Turn of the Rogue, and Rogue doesn't want anything to do with her after that mess. Understandable. So what does Mystique do? Well, what any concerned parent would. She masquerades as a high school student and becomes her estranged kid's best friend. What?! Rachel Edidin, and I am here to explain the X-Men, because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 73 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. Now, as you can tell, Miles is out this week as I record. As you listen, he's back in Portland, but right now he is up at PAX, working at the Dark Horse booth. Hopefully those of you who are there have had a chance to stop by and say hi. If not, well, next time. Speaking of conventions, we are going to be at Rose City Comic Con. That is September 19th and 20th. It's going to be the first show we're tabling at. We are at table 09 in Artist Sally, and this is all going to be up on the website, so you don't need to write it down or anything. But I want to talk in particular about one thing we're going to be doing there because it's kind of a big deal. And it's the first time we've ever tried to do this, and that is a live episode that we're recording as a panel. It is at 5 p.m. on Saturday on the 19th. It's going to be kind of huge. We have an amazing, amazing lineup of guests, and we're also going to have another listener meetup that night. I don't know how many of you were able to make it to the one at Emerald City Comic Con. This is going to be a little bit bigger. It's going to be off-site, so if you're not going to Rose City, if you don't have a con badge, you can still attend. And that's going to be hosted by Portland Alternative Arts Venue, the steep and thorny way to heaven. If that name sounds familiar. I think I've mentioned it before. I recently wrapped up a stint as writer-in-residence there, and they're actually donating the use of their space for our meetup. It will be all ages. It's going to start at 8 p.m., and again, I will have more details up on the website, and we'll probably be talking about both of those pretty much nonstop on the podcast until they actually happen. Now, today I am alone in the studio, but with me here via the magic of technology is Robert N. Skier, and If you know his name, which you may well, it is through a lot of animation. He has worked on a ton of animated series, including the X-Men animated series in the 90s, wrote a handful of episodes for that. And most significantly for my purposes, since again, it's just me this week, which means we get to talk about whatever I want, Bob Skier is also the co-developer and co-writer of the series Bible for X-Men Evolution. Welcome. Thank you very much, Rachel. It's nice to be here. So does that about cover the intro? I associate you primarily with animation. I know you've done work across TV, but I mean, you've worked on a ton of the animated series sort of that were coming out when I was a kid. So the great Batman series, um, Transformers, and of course, both of the first two X-Men shows. I had a lot of fun working on a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I was also on Gargoyles for a bunch of episodes. And that was amazing, too, because, well, it's a classic series. When I talk about shows like Batman and Gargoyles, I wrote a couple of episodes of those shows, and so I look at those as like parties that were amazing parties that I was very, very glad to have been invited to. I don't look at them as like my series. So when I talk about Batman and how wonderful it was, it wasn't like, and I did Batman. It was more like, Batman was amazing, and I'm really, really, really proud they brought me in to write a couple of episodes. And Gargoyles was utterly a groundbreaking series, and I'm really, really you know, proud they had me in for a couple of those. 
So when it comes to a lot of these shows, I look at them and I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I've had to contribute to them because I know a lot of people grew up on them. Some of them came out to be amazing shows. And uh, I'm, as I say, very grateful to have been involved with them. But with X-Men, you were involved in that almost from the start. I read in your essay in The Unauthorized X-Men, which, by the way, is a fantastic collection of essays by a lot of really neat writers who've had, you know, various vectors of involvement with the X-Men franchise. I recommend checking that out, listeners, if you are interested in an ongoing commentary from folks sort of really on both sides of the drawing board there. You mentioned that you were involved in, you know, developing the character guidelines for the original animated series from the very beginning. Yeah, I was. Let me give you some background on me just in terms of X-Men because it's all relevant. When I was first reading comics, I was reading a lot of everybody, mostly Marvels, of course, and I was just crazy about all the books. There was a point where Adam Warlock had just been brought back by Jim Starlin, and that was utterly amazing. Mike Klude was drawing Man-Thing. In the early 70s, I mean, it was a real renaissance because the first wave of new people who took over from Stan and Jack were in their heyday, and they were doing brilliant stuff. They were all just you know, shepherded by Roy Thomas initially, uh, it was a whole new wave of new people bringing new, fresh blood to the Marvel Universe. Yeah, it was that first real era of distinct style shifts, because the late Silver Age, you saw a lot of people really basically doing riffs on Stan and Jack. And I sort of associate the early 70s with the first really, really major influx of distinct new voices. Yeah, well, up until that point, it really was just Stan and Jack. Around 1970, Jack left to go to D.C. and to, well ultimately redesign their entire universe. If you look at how important the uh, the dark side mythology is and New Genesis and Apocalypse, if you look at how important those are to the DC universe, you realize that while trying to just tell a little set of stories in the corner of the DC universe, Jack ultimately wound up reshaping a lot of its mythology. That's just, I guess, the nature of having somebody like Jack Kirby out there who is, well... Yeah, who thinks in that big cosmic scope. When you get down to it. But uh, to bring it back, I was going to conventions back then, and they announced at one of the conventions that they were bringing back the X-Men. X-Men was, at that point, uh, a reprint book, because they had done a lot of X-Men, and then X-Men wasn't selling so well, but instead of canceling the book, they just reprinted older stories. And so, for a couple of years, they were just sort of this um, a reprint book, and the X-Men never got a temperature out of me. You know, they had this guy with the bird wings, and they had Frosty the Snowman, and they had this guy with the big feet. I really wasn't into it. But then they announced they were going to be bringing them back as the all-new, all-different X-Men. They were going to introduce all these new characters to it. They were going to bring in this character, Wolverine, who had been a pest to the Hulk in a couple of Hulk issues a few years earlier. You know, everyone's response was immediate. It was, wait a minute, no, what about the original X-Men? So, like, the ones we didn't care about suddenly were like, wait a minute, they're getting kicked out of their own book. But yeah. Giant Size X-Men came out, and, of course, you know, I'm at a convention, and someone has a copy of it, and I'm like, where did you get that? Take me to the table where they have that, because they wanted to make sure I didn't get there too late to get an issue. And I got Giant Size X-Men, and I read it, and it was kind of amazing. It was written by Len Wein, who I now count as one of my closest friends. He introduced, uh, with Dave Cockrum, a whole new set of characters, which included, but not limited to, Storm and Colossus and Nightcrawler, and Wolverine, whose mask was changed so it didn't have those silly whiskers. I really liked the book a lot. 
I was heartbroken when Dave Cockrum said he was going to be leaving the book. And it was taken over by this guy, John Byrne, who, within two or three issues, turned the book from a really good book into an obsession. The Byrne Claremont X-Men books, those aren't stories. That's history. I look at those as a real high point in comics. And I know everyone has their favorite eras in X-Men history. For me, the Byrne Claremont X-Men is the definitive X-Men. That's one of the reasons that when people go back to the classic stories, they always seem to go back to those. They really created something wonderful back then. Burns' art style, there was like facial acting going on in there that we hadn't seen in comics before because Burns was such an extraordinary artist. And Claremont was bringing in a level of psychological depth to the characters that we hadn't seen before. And they were telling these stories that were absolutely monumental, most notably the Dark Phoenix saga which was utterly remarkable, and Days of Future Past, which, within a two-issue storyline, redefined and reshaped the Marvel Universe, certainly the X-Men Universe, because suddenly we were dealing with lots of alternate futures and things. And it introduced, you know, one of the concepts that is the bread and butter of the explaining of the X-Men being necessary, which is the very, very frequent return to time travel and splinter timelines. Right, right, right. But, you know, coming ahead, I mean, I... I loved those books, and I loved when they introduced Kitty Pride because she changed the dynamic of that book entirely. Uh, she was introduced when John Byrne was leaving, and Chris Claremont, and Dave Cockrum, and then Paul Smith. Oh my god, the Paul Smith issues. Yeah, Paul Smith they, is my definitive X-Men artist. He's the guy who is my go-to for the way those characters look in my head. But you mentioned Kitty in particular. And I kind of want to jump on that because she was kind of the first major point of entry character for me. And I think for a lot of readers, because she was the kid who was new to the team, who wasn't diving in as a seasoned superhero and who was kind of taken aback by a lot of what she saw. And almost every iteration of the X-Men has had one of those. In the first animated series, though, it's Jubilee. And she sort of seems to be kind of a Jubilee Kitty hybrid. And I was wondering if you can speak to that a bit, that point of development. Yeah. um, Well, I just... I want to get back to what led me to do the characters in the first place before getting to that, because that is really, really, really important What you, you know, Kitty Pride and, and having an entry character. Get, getting back to it, I was utterly obsessed with X-Men. I came to UCLA to become a screenwriter, and one of my main objectives was to write an X-Men movie. And I came in 83, and I didn't write it until 1990, because I needed to become the writer I wanted to be before writing it. And... I wrote the screenplay in 1990, and within a year or two, I was writing animation because Fox had done the Beetlejuice series, and Marty Eisenberg, my then writing partner and I, uh, got to work in the series uh, under Eric Leewald. And Eric moved from Beetlejuice, as soon as it finished, to developing X-Men. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So I fell into animation exactly when they started doing the projects I liked and doing them the right way. And because I was so obsessed with X-Men, And because Eric wasn't nearly as familiar with them, I helped him develop the series. I became the resident X-Men expert, and I wrote the character bios because I wanted to make sure the characters really breathed and were the characters that we grew up with and loved. That was my involvement with the show. So I wrote a bunch of important episodes, I think. But you cut to the year 2000, when they decided to do X-Men Evolution. Uh, Avi Arad, he had read my X-Men screenplay, 
and remembered. And also, he knew my track record in animation and spearheading a lot of different shows. And so Marty and I were offered a chance to develop X-Men Evolution, which at that point was just called the new X-Men series. It didn't have a title yet. But in terms of going back to the original X-Men series, in terms of Jubilee and having Kitty Pride and having a character as an entry-level character for, for a new audience, yeah, when you introduce a series in a whole new world, you want to have somebody who is coming in new so that they're seeing it with the same fresh eyes as its audience. So they introduced Kitty Pride, who became a great gateway character to a whole new generation of comics fans. And introducing her changed the dynamic of the team because suddenly you had this new character and everybody was a different character because of how they related to her. So you're seeing a side to Storm that you hadn't seen before because suddenly she has this younger sister-daughter kind of character to nurture. And then you had Wolverine who has to deal with, oh my God, there are kids in my school. And he's got this sort of affection for her, but also this sort of, oh my God, I don't need these kids around. And you have Nightcrawler who's trying to be friends with her. But meanwhile, she's like, oh my God, this guy is, I mean, I, I can't get past the fact that this guy is so creepy. And by the way, do you know why Kitty Pride had a giant aversion to Nightcrawler? In the comics, at least, it's initially because of the combination of his appearance and the fact that he teleports. Right. But the reason that Byrne and Claremont said, hey, she's freaked out by Nightcrawler, is because all of the women who read the X-Men books thought he was the cutest, most wonderful thing. (laughs) (laughs) And so they decided it would be kind of fun to have somebody come in who had the exact opposite reaction to him. And it's also quite wonderful because it's the way somebody in that world would actually react to him. It's like, well, he seems like a nice guy, but he's creepy and he's got that tail and he just pops into the room and it's just, I can't deal with it. Yeah, I think teleporting would be the kind of deal breaker for me, at least. So having that kid point of entry character seems like a really good segue to X-Men Evolution for me. And X-Men Evolution, for those of you unfamiliar with it, and shame on you, is a series that takes a lot of the X-Men characters back to high school age. There are a few adults who are running the school, but the majority of the core cast is in their mid-teens. And when most of your point of view characters are kids, are teenagers, how do you navigate that? How do you navigate having, you know, a point of entry or a POV character who's more audience relatable or not? Because that's usually, in X-Men at least, that's usually been the kid. Well, that's the thing. When they offered us the chance to do a new X-Men series, the question is, what do you do next? Because they had just done five or six years of the original X-Men series, which was a rather exhaustive series. Mm -hmm. They really told a lot of amazing stories, and they really followed all the characters to their logic conclusions, and they really did a great job on them. So the question is, what do you do next? My gut feeling was, why don't we take them back to the beginning, to what they were initially? Because when the X-Men were first introduced, they were high school students in a school for superheroes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the X-Men was the school for gifted youngsters. It was a school for superheroes. So why don't we take it back to that? I was talking about with Marty, and Marty's like, yeah, that's the logical thing to do with them. And it turned out that Kids WB wanted to do the series set in a high school. It was one of their... Not really a mandate per se, but all of their shows seem to either be set in high school or about people who were high school age. So what was wonderful was that everybody was looking at this and wanting to do the same show, which was great. The way that you bring fresh people into, like a fresh audience into it, is by having lots of fresh characters and everybody entering this world sort of at the same time. So 
when the series begins, you only have two people in the X-Mansion. You only have Gene and Scott. So everybody who comes in is a new character, and the audience can come in with this new character and sort of be introduced in the world at the same time. So the first character we introduced is Nightcrawler, and then uh, Kitty Pride comes in, and Rogue comes in, and uh, Evan Daniels, Spike comes in. And so there's all of these opportunities for the audience to be drawn into this world and be drawn by characters who are analogous to them. Because, you know, if, if, if you want kids to be brought in and recognize themselves with the character who comes in, well, all the characters are point-of-entry characters. So whereas Jubilee was the point-of-entry character in the original X-Men series... All of the characters are point-of-entry characters. How character-driven it is is something that's always really struck me. I've got the series Bible in front of me, and one of the notes that really stuck out at me the first time I read it is, this is not an action show with great characters, it's a character show with great action, which for me has always been really a defining trait of X-Men. And along with that, you know, I refer to it as my soap opera, but... The character dynamics and the relationships have, to a great extent, been what's always driven the action in the book and a lot of the appeal of that. How does that dynamic shift and change when you make most of the cast teenagers with that, you know, amped up intensity? Well, what it does is it it changes the dynamic of it because their relationships are inherently different now. Because they're all students in a school together, as opposed to freedom fighters in an enclave. And when you have characters like Storm who are now in the role of a teacher, where you have the role of, uh, like, you have Wolverine there as uh, sort of a, a teacher-slash-mentor, it's different from having him as the outsider within the group. Mm-hmm. So you have the relationships changing there, right there. The thing that made X-Men really, really pop was the relationships between the characters. It's one of the reasons Fantastic Four was always fantastic, because... You have this relationship within this family, and the Fantastic Four is a family. You know, it's how Johnny gets along with or fails to get along with Ben. It's the relationship between Sue and Johnny. It's it's all the different relationships that really define it. And with X-Men, you have all these incredible characters, and the way they interact with each other, it really is about the soap opera. It's not about the action stories. So that was something from the outset you know, with the original X-Men series even, uh, when I wrote the character breakdowns for those, what I did was I wrote down who their personalities were, who they got along with and why, how they felt about the world they were in. And the very last thing I talked about was their powers because their powers were the least important things about them. And the thing with the X-Men Evolution Bible, I did the same thing. I talk about who are these guys as people and how do they get along with each other? The fact that Scott has these eye beams is, well, the fact that that's his power is the least important thing about him, but the fact that he can't control those eye beams is far more important. So I want to stay on Cyclops for a second because, you know, Cyclops is my favorite character. I am one of those X-Men fans. And one of the things that fascinated me about evolution is I feel like there's a really distinct generation gap, first of all, between X-Men fans who grew up with cartoons. And it's to the point where you can almost date which one they grew up with, because the ones who grew up with the 90s animated series will almost always list Cyclops as their least favorite character. And it's almost entirely the reverse with the evolution ones. Part of that I know is that in the 90s animated series, a lot of the time Cyclops is sort of stuck in the role of team grown-up, which makes the fact that he's not one of the aged-up characters in evolution a lot more interesting to me. 
you've got the adult faculty at the X-Men school when the, the show starts are Professor X, obviously, but Wolverine and Storm and everyone else is a teenager. How did you choose who the teachers were going to be? Which characters were going to be the grownups of the team? Well, it's kind of simple, really. Cyclops was always one of the students among everybody else. He was always the leader. And so basically he was the equivalent of the quarterback. So if all the characters are going to be in high school, Cyclops can't be a teacher. He's got to be first among equals on the team. He's got to be, you know, the team leader when they're in the field. And he has to be one of them. So obviously he was going to be a high school student. Uh, my feeling about Storm was, I don't think anybody wanted to see Teen Storm, you know? So she was the one that we wanted to keep as an adult because it just made the most sense to keep her as an adult. Wolverine, I don't think anybody in the world ever wanted to see Teen Wolvie. Well, he was originally supposed to turn out to be a teenager in the comic, I think. I suppose there were a lot of different thoughts about that, but I'm talking about the Wolverine that we were dealing with it by that point. Mm. The Wolverine that everybody had known, nobody wanted to see him as a teenager. But also, I don't think people wanted to see him as a teacher, per se, either. So it's sort of like he's in the mansion. He's kind of an outsider. He's sort of a teacher. He's sort of not a teacher. But he's certainly not going to be a kid. By the way, before we continue, I want to make it really, really clear what I'm here to talk about and what I'm here to certainly not take credit for. Okay? Um, I'm here to talk about the creation of the Bible and the development for X-Men Evolution, because that's what I did. I wrote the Bible. I did the development for the series. The developed by credit on any series goes to the person who wrote the Bible. And I wrote the Bible. It went out exactly as I wrote it. And I wrote it with Marty. And if there was a developed by credit on the series, we would have gotten it. The fact that we weren't on the series when it was broadcast when it was when it was finished is the reason that we didn't get the developed by credit. We weren't on the show and our names we just weren't put on it that way. But what I'm not here to take credit for, what I cannot take credit for, are any of the stories that were told in the series. Because I wasn't there for the writing of any of those scripts. So I want to make it really, really clear, I take no credit for anything that was done in the series after I left. And what was done after I left was brilliant work. I think it's a terrific, terrific series, but I'm not taking credit for it. I want to talk about how the series was developed and what the thinking was behind what became the bedrock of the series. And I should say to listeners, that series Bible has never been officially released. But if you do some very careful Googling, you can find fairly large chunks of it online. It's really interesting to read, and it's really interesting to see what predicated, you know, the stuff that actually made it to the air, and what changed. And actually, I want to talk about one of the things that changed, because... A lot of it changed. A lot of, yeah. Was, if you read it, you can see a lot of where... I take... I speak in the first person when it comes to the writing of the Bible, because I was in charge of developing X-Men and writing the Bible while Marty was in charge of doing the series Action Man, which he wrote the Bible for, and he was like the main story editor for 90% of that series. So because I'm X-Men obsessed, and because Marty was busy on a series that was more than a 24-7 series, 
a lot of it was ideas that were later discarded or sort of ignored because I just went way into the weeds with a lot of the description of the classes they were taking and the relationships between the people. And a lot of it showed up in the series. And a lot of it kind of, you know, a lot of it was factored out. Um, I had this thing where, you know, Rogue was really jealous of uh, Gene because Gene was popular. And, you know, that kind of got, you know, never used. I was talking about how, you know, Kitty has kind of a crush on Scott. I don't think that ever showed up in the series. So there's a lot of things that, that I had in the Bible that just sort of didn't happen. So, you know, a lot of the fundamental things are there, and a lot of it was pared back because when you write a Bible, you have lots of ideas that are expressed, and you're you're thinking lots of different thoughts, and if people pick up on them and cultivate them great, and the ones that sort of don't get picked up are sort of like, okay, that's a nice idea, we're not going there. It's funny, actually, that you brought up the Rogue and Gene dynamic, because that is something that I read as very much having been preserved in the form it was realized in the show. I want to go back to the characters, and I specifically want to go back to Evan Daniels' Spike, because he is, I think, of the core cast, the one who's totally a newcomer to the universe. He's the one who's not based directly on any of the comics characters, although he's got powers very, very similar to Marrow's. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the process of creating him, why you decided to go whole cloth for that particular character. Well, when you're doing a new series... I always feel like you should have a new face so that when people see a picture of the characters, they know exactly what they're looking at. It's like, oh, that must be X-Men Evolution. There's Spike. You know what I mean? When I was doing the series Beast Machines, uh, there were all these standard sort of Transformers characters. So we introduced a character called Night Scream because we just wanted a new face in the team. I felt like, you know, X-Men, there should be a new face on this team. And if it's a brand new character, then that changes the dynamics in the way that adding Kitty Pride to the books changed the dynamic. So I'm more proud of Evan Daniels than I am of pretty much anything else I've done in my career as a singular character. Here's how the character came to be. Here's the character Spike. He was designed by Steve Gordon, as were most of the other characters, and the character designs in the series are incredible. It's completely animation-friendly. They completely capture who the characters are. I think it's one of the really amazing things about the show is, is how beautiful the characters were designed. I will link to this in the visual companion, but Steve Gordon's actually got a bunch of detailed breakdowns of that process of designing those characters up on his website. It's really interesting to go through if you have the chance. Yeah, and I think he did a spectacular job on them. The X-Men were 40 years old by the time X-Men Evolution was being developed. And the X-Men had, among their roster... Guys with beams that shoot out of their heads. They had people who could move objects by thinking about it. They had people who can go into your mind. They had people who can go into your body. They had guys with wings. They had everything. But you know what they didn't have? They didn't have an adolescent African-American guy on the team. And the reason I found that peculiar was... As one of the writers on the X-Men animated series, I would wear my X-Men jacket and people would be like, oh my God, that's fantastic. You worked on that show. Oh my God, I love that show. I love the X-Men, blah, 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 blah. Well, anyway, the people who I found were particularly enthralled with the series, adolescent black guys, they loved the show. You know, it was a series about people who are disenfranchised. It's about, you know, persecuted minorities. It's about, the series is about civil rights. And, you know, that's just a few of the reasons that it seems to speak to that particular audience. Also, they just happen to like the show. And it seemed unfair to me that there was nobody on the team 
who looked like they did. It just seemed impolite. I'd been to a comic book store a couple of years before, and a friend of mine, Dussel, was working behind a cash register. He's a guy who writes comics now. He's a professional writer. He's, he's great. And he was working in the store, and he pointed to an issue of Justice League. And on the cover of Justice League, it says, these heroes are going out to save the universe. And it was Batman and Superman and Hal Jordan's Green Lantern and The Flash and Wonder Woman, and they're all flying toward the camera. And he's like, hey, how come my people don't get to save the universe? Now, the joke was a setup for a punchline because the cover of the next issue was the same shot, but all the characters are reduced to skeletons and their costumes are shriveled around them. And the, on the bottom, it says, instead of these heroes are going to save the universe, on the bottom, it says, and now they're all going to die. So it was a setup for a joke, but it never ever left me the question of how come my folks don't get to save the universe? So how can you have the X-Men with all of the diversity and all of their powers and the fact that they're supposed to represent people who are disenfranchised? How can you have a book like that that then turns a blind eye toward one of its most loyal, outspoken demographics? It seemed impolite. It just was unfair. So it wasn't like there's some mandate out there for minority representation, because I always find that kind of thing to be rude and condescending, no matter how high-minded people are trying to be. It's just not polite. It's not right. You know, there should be somebody in the team. Up until then, the closest thing that was there was Bishop, and Bishop was an adult. He was a grown-up. He wasn't like one of the gang. And even when he was part of the team, he wasn't one of the gang. He was sort of an outsider. So... Why isn't there somebody in the team who represents that? And so I decided, you know, well, I made a pitch. I said, why don't we have an African-American guy on the team? They were on board with that. They thought that was a nice idea. And so I said, why don't we make it that it's Storm's nephew? Because that way we'll see a side of Storm that we hadn't seen before. Because... What you want to do whenever possible is show a new side to your characters. And Storm had never been in a position where she had a character like that. So I decided, well, you know, why don't we have a character be a nephew? And so that's where that's where Evan Daniels came from. And the name actually came from a friend of mine who was an executive at Fox named Dan Evans. We'd worked together on a whole bunch of shows. And I just figured it'd be kind of fun to name a character after him. So the character Dan Evans, it became Evan Daniels. And that's where Spike came from. I couldn't come up with a really good power for him or, you know, a name for him or anything. Um, I was kind of at a loss. I came up with a couple of ideas, which were found to be kind of lame. And I was just sort of like, well, I don't know. I'll come up with something. So I'm curious about what those other ideas were, what Spike might have ended up. Oh, God. Well, these were ideas for ideas. These weren't like, I really want to do this. I'm really going to push for this. One of the ideas was a character I was going to call Chimera, where he could change into different animals. So instead of him being like Beast Boy, where he becomes, you know, now he's a green ape and now he's a green kangaroo. It's like, no, no, no. If he's a chimera, he's half one animal and half another. And that would be really, really cool, wouldn't it? Well, maybe as a Green Lantern villain, but it just doesn't sound like an X-Man. Well, and especially on a show where you've got Mystique as a villain and she has, you know, the same power set, but wider. Right. So anyway, 
I was at a loss. I didn't really have a power. And so when it was suggested, when somebody came in, and I, 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 I don't remember whose idea it was. I'm sorry. I wish I did. But somebody came up with the idea of Spike with the protrusions, and I thought it was great. So we were off to the races. We, we had a character. We had a power. And we had a new face for the team. So I'm really, really proud that I got to create a character who was the kind of character who should have been on the X-Men for for decades, you know? But on the other hand, I can take no credit at all for the name Spike or his powers. That's the spirit of collaboration. That's where one person brings one thing to the party, someone else brings another thing to the party, and what you wind up with is something, you know, truly wonderful. That's a fascinating thing to see in animation. I mean, I come from a comics background, and most of what we talk about on the podcast is comics, and we discuss that particular creative synergy as it applies to comics a whole lot, where you have writer and artist teams you see adapting to each other's styles and, and really developing things that neither voice could have carried individually. But the scale it happens on in television is, I think, an entirely different one. It's so much larger and so many more folks contributing in this part of it. And then ultimately, too, the performances. So The dynamic, by the way, that you're talking about where the artist comes in and the, the writer comes in, that's exactly the synergy I go to with Byrne and Claremont. Mm-hmm, um, absolutely. You know, Claremont is an amazing writer and Byrne is an incredible artist. And when you have the two of them coming together, for me... I don't think it's overstating the case. It was like watching Lennon and McCartney. And I don't think that any team, you know, between Claremont and whoever comes anywhere near the magic that we got with burning Claremont. Oh, but- I disagree. I, I really disagree. Actually, one of my favorite things about Claremont as a writer, especially in the mid to late 80s, the mid 80s, is the way he adapts with different artists that you get a very, very different Claremont when he's writing for Frank Miller, when he's writing for Bill Sienkiewicz, when he's, you know, working with Byrne, working with Cockrum, working with Smith. And he's talked about that a fair lot in interviews, how much, especially focal characters and storylines have shifted based on artist preferences. I have favorites, but I have trouble cementing, you know, a best because none of them feel quite precisely comparable to me. Well, here, here's the thing is, I completely agree with you. When I say about Byrne Claremont, you know, being like Lennon and McCartney, that's my personal feelings when I see that viscerally. Mm-hmm. But yes, the beauty of Claremont was... As he would work with different artists, the book would evolve and feel completely different. And what Byrne and Claremont were doing, like with Wolverine, who was the star of the book at that point, was completely different from what you had with Paul Smith and Claremont when Kitty Pride became very much the focal point of the book. And it's very different from when Jim Lee took over the book. And yeah, Claremont was wonderful no matter who he was working with. And he had a different voice with every one of his artists, and it's wonderful. I'm just, I guess when I point to Burning Claremont, it's like, you know, well, that's my favorite album. It's like, yeah, the other albums are fantastic, too. That's a personal favorite of mine. Well, it's the definitive one. I mean, I think the others are all good, but it's the one that is, you know, capital letters X-Men. I go back to this always, and I, I we get pretty regular questions about if I only read one issue of X-Men, what is the X-Men issue? And it's the end of a story arc, but I always come back to X-Men 137 as just the issue that crystallizes the team and the series and the look and the feel and the narrative and everything about it that defines it for me. It's the the very, very end of the Dark Phoenix saga, the fight on the moon. Well, that's a double-sized issue where you have sequences before the battle where you're seeing them all reflecting on their own mortality and you're having these very human moments and you have this epic battle, but you're also having these wonderful character moments and character relation moments in it. So you're exactly right. It really encapsulates what makes the X-Men so special as a book. 
That's a remarkable issue. An absolutely remarkable issue. Can I go back and sort of uh, talk about some of the earlier, more fundamental decisions that were made with this series? Yeah, that would be great. Okay. Um, one of the most controversial ideas in the series was the idea that the characters were going to two different schools. A lot of people were like, well, how come they were at the School for Gifted Mutants at the same time they were going to Bayville High School? And that was an idea that we had to arrive upon. I was pushing for it very, very heavily, and it was a series of discussions that we had to come to. The way it works is very simple. This was a series about these kids being high school students and having to cope with these new powers, but also trying to fit in with other people. And there's no jeopardy if they're always in the school, if they're always in the Xavier Institute. Because what's going to happen? Cyclops is going to lose control of his powers and Jean Grey is going to find out he's a mutant? You know, there's no jeopardy there. The jeopardy is what happens when they're in the high school and their powers become known. Oh, my God, people are going to think I'm a a, a freak. They're going to reject me. It's going to be horrible. You need to have them among other teenagers. And so for that reason, they obviously needed to be at the Xavier Institute so they'd have the danger room and the ability to interact with each other as incipient superheroes. But more importantly, you had to show them among other people because the whole idea is, oh my God, how do I fit in? That's the thing about the X-Men that makes them absolutely one of the most enduring properties out there, is the fact that they work spectacularly as a series of metaphors, not just one. So when you had the 90s series at Fox... It was a show about a persecuted minority. It was a show about civil rights. It was a show about them being outcasts in society, trying to fit in, but being persecuted. And so it was a show about civil rights. In the second X-Men movie, Brian Singer made it an analogy about being gay, because gays are outsiders. And there's a scene in the movie where Bobby Drake... Iceman comes out to his parents. Yeah, the have you tried not being a mutant scene. Have you tried not being a mutant? Now, you know that there were people who asked Brian Singer, hey, have you tried not being gay? So in that case, it was a wonderful, wonderful metaphor to show the hurt that outsiders feel, and in that case, particularly people who are gay. The metaphor that we got to have in X-Men Evolution was the metaphor of being a teenager. When you're a teenager, you feel like a freak. Oh my God, my body is changing. What's going on here? There's this thing about me that makes me feel utterly unique and utterly special. I'm coming into my life, into my powers. Yeah, the sense that no one else has ever felt these things. No one else has ever experienced the world in the way that I am experiencing it. That sort of distinct isolation. Teenager, you feel like you're totally unique, but at the same time, Oh my God, if my friends ever found out who I really was underneath, they would think I was a freak and they'd reject me. Now, what's more X-Men than that? And what is more, you know, uniquely quintessentially teenage? The quintessential teenage experience is, oh my God, the people around me are going to reject me if they find out who I am. That's where the character uh, Duncan Matthews is really important. You know, it's Jean's boyfriend. What happens if he finds out she's a mutant? Is, is he going to be cool with it? Is he going to reject her? What's going to happen? 
Well, clearly he's going to reject her because he's set up so immediately as such a jerk in this series. I mean, he's I feel like that part at least was unsurprising. But one of the things I want to go back to is I was thinking about this as you were talking. And, you know, the idea of X-Men interacting with a normal environment in a predominantly human environment and dealing with the risk and the question of being outed. And I was trying to think of a previous time that they'd done that while they were on the team. And I couldn't think of one because you have periods of time where characters leave the team and, and lead relatively normal lives and sort of get sucked back in or, or not. But you almost never see the X-Men doing the double life thing. They are pretty much either full-time superheroes or full-time civilians. Is Evolution the first place where that actually happened? Do you know? Well, when the X-Men started, they were a school for superheroes and they lived in the mansion and they interacted with each other. And they never had social lives outside the mansion. They were just sort of amongst each other. Well, they had the coffee at Go-Go. Okay. What year was that? That was throughout the Silver Age. There was a coffee shop where they all hung out and where um, Bobby and Hank both had girlfriends who they'd met through there and saw. And in that's their main vector of contact through the outside world in the Silver Age, except when Professor X is dead and they go scatter and lead make-believe civilian lives for a while. But essentially, their relationships were with each other in the school. And... The X-Men was, and most people don't remember this, they were a secret team. They were a team that nobody knew existed. So when they would go out on missions, they would do what they can to cover up with the fact that they were ever there. I mean, this is the, the you know, this is way in the beginning of the X-Men. They were the team that nobody knew about. It was one of the very strange, sort of unique things about them. So not only didn't they have secret identities, they were just invisible people. They just lived in their own little house and didn't interact with the people around them. So they didn't really have dual lives because their lives were pretty much just hermetically sealed within each other. So I guess this was the first time that they had done that with the characters was to give them a double life. But the reason that that was done was because it was important to have them have to interact with other high schoolers. There's no point to the series if they're not. I mean... There's no metaphor to be had if they're not around other people who are going to look at them and perhaps judge them unfairly based on who they are. There is, but it's a very different metaphor at that point. One of the things that we've had a couple questions about, and I go back to, is the version of Rogue who exists in this comic. Well, Rogue and Kitty, um, a lot of the adapted characters who, who started out as adult X-Men are very, very recognizable in their forms and evolution. You know, they're aged down, they're modified somewhat, but they're very much the ones we're used to seeing from the comics. Rogue is not. And I want to discuss that because Rogue, Evolution Rogue reminds me a little bit more of movie Rogue, but she's really kind of her own version of it. She's sort of the goth Rogue. She's a lot darker, a lot quieter. She doesn't have the very outgoing sort of flirtatious, intense personality as with the original Rogue. How did you decide on those changes and what specifically informed them? Well, that's one of these real collaboration things where lots of people were adding lots of different things. Let me explain to you what I contributed and then what other people contributed. My initial thought was when we first introduced Rogue, she should only have her inherent Rogue powers. She should only be able to siphon other people's powers. I thought that was important because we're just meeting her. We're not that deep into the Marvel Universe history that she would have stolen Ms. Marvel's powers. So I thought it would be really great to just take her back to what she was originally, which is something that we'd never actually seen before. Because in the comics, when we first meet her, she already has those superpowers. So it was a really unique way to portray the character. What I didn't know at the time was, because the movie hadn't come out yet, that's exactly what they were doing 
in the feature. So I was really glad to see that, you know, everybody seemed to be thinking the same way. I was really glad that everybody wanted to do Rogue as just a power siphon. I thought that was really exciting and wonderful and terrific. It's also great because whenever she steals people's powers, she doesn't know how to use those powers. She's figuring it out for the first time. So no matter what's happening, even if she's in control of having somebody's powers, she's not in control of those powers. Now, when Rogue was first introduced for the first, I don't know how many years, I'm going to say like eight years, she was a very waif-looking character. She was very small and very slight. She was very young. She was around the same age as Kitty was. You know, she was very, very small, which is why it was funny watching her punching through walls and stuff. It wasn't until Jim Lee came in where he just turned her into an entirely different character, where suddenly she was very big and statuesque, and she was busty, and she was this va-va-voom bombshell. And she hadn't been that before. If you look at how Paul Smith drew the character, and then you look at how Jim Lee drew the character, they're entirely different human beings. I think there's a a slightly smoother transition than the one you're seeing, because the bombshell rogue, I think, really starts in the late 80s with Mark Silvestri. You see her a lot more during the Australia era. That's right, yes. When they were traveling the world and going to Australia, so Mm -hmm. yeah. But the character evolved. You can really see how different she was. And... For the original X-Men series, they went with the whole, well, I mean, all the character designs were Jim Lee's. He didn't design the characters for the series, but those were the designs they went with for the series. I want to say Frank Brenner was doing the character designs for that show. Um, I hope I'm right. But uh, the idea was, in terms of Rogue, to, to go back and kind of rethink her. The idea of doing her kind of as a, a goth-looking chick, that was something I think that uh, Boyd Kirkland and Frank Parr and Steve Gordon came up with amongst themselves, where they gave her that kind of gothy look. And it's gangbusters. Oh, she I love that smaller, so much. She looks slighter. She looks, she has this sullen look about her. She just has this, if you just look at the pictures of her, she has this attitude to her that is wonderful. And if you compare that character with the character from the 90s series, you're looking at entirely different human beings, entirely different characters. And they're both wonderful. But I love the way she looks in Evolution. I think that uh, Steve Gordon did an amazing job designing her. And one of the things I was really happy about was they didn't give her the cornpone accent. I grew up in New York. I went to school in Virginia. I knew a lot of people from all over the South. I knew people from Tennessee. I met people from, you know, you know Virginia, from Texas, from, you know, Alabama, all over the place. And... Just because someone's from the South doesn't mean they talk like a hillbilly, okay? They don't all talk Southern fried. They don't. So, you know, I really got tired of the cornpone talk they had Rogue doing in the 90s series. Sometimes it was just like, oh, my God, I I wish they weren't doing this. And so having her, a Southerner who talks normal in X-Men Evolution was absolutely delightful. So I was really happy for the people who wrote her. Uh, and I was really happy for the people who directed the actor and for the actor's performance because they took her in a different direction and they made her utterly unique for that series and, and made her really wonderful. So once again, I was pushing for something that they would have been pushing for anyway, which was giving her just the powers to siphon people's powers. But in terms of the character that she became in the scripts and in the stories and certainly in the character design, 
I think it's utterly wonderful. I think it's it's fantastic. Yeah, Megan Black's performance as Rogue is one of my favorites in the series, the accent and the voice. And I've I've written about this, but as someone who very much was a Southern goth in 2000, there's a lot about that character that rings very, very true to me. So Southern goth, where are you from? Um, I grew up mostly in South Florida. I'm originally from Indiana and I've lived all over the place. Okay. You know, my, you, that's my very, you, very you generic from the South, from the deep South. They don't all talk like hillbillies. Well, <laughs> South Florida is actually technically a suburb of New England. Oh, yeah, no, no, no same, I understand that. When you're in Florida, when you're so far South, you're actually North. So speaking of characters, there are a few mostly bit characters in the series Bible who never made it into the show. And I'm wondering whether given endless space, time and development, you have any particular favorites that you would have liked to see incorporated into the show or to see eventually developed into X-Men media franchises who um, haven't well, yet. Which ones in particular? Well, the one that I queued in on and the one that I think like five different people wrote in to ask about is Doug Ramsey Cypher. But in general, it's always fascinating to me seeing which characters people pick from when they're developing the X-Men for other media, which ones do and don't make it. Because you've got, you know, sort of a central core lineup that seems to make it in pretty much every incarnation. Which then there are, the there team? are always sort of outliers and some of those fill necessary functions. But I suspect that a lot of the time they reflect, you know, the preferences and the specific eras that the creators and the folks who are, are making the final calls decide on the thing with doug ramsey is he existed in the comics because you wanted to have kitty pride have friends who were outside the mansion and so she had a friend outside the mansion who was a regular guy and a normal guy and they got to be friends and she got to interact with a normal person but the character became popular and they said well you know what he should be a mutant and so once again you have a world in which mutants are outsiders in which every single person they meet happens to be a mutant so i was really unhappy when they made dug into a mutant because, hey, what about the normal people? Shouldn't there be more normal people they're interacting with? But I introduced Doug into the Bible because I wanted to have a character out there who was normal and for her to interact with. And I think, it, you know, if he wanted to become Cypher later, that would be great. But we didn't need the character. I was more than happy to not have the character in the series. When we were supporting the other the team, the thing I'm most proud of in terms of the core team were Nightcrawler and Kitty Pride. They were not in the lineup. And I said, we need to have them in. It was a mistake not having Kitty in the original series. I would have had her instead of Jubilee. And Nightcrawler belonged on the original team. I would not have used the Beast instead of uh, Nightcrawler. Because Nightcrawler's more fun. So I pushed heavily for Nightcrawler and Kitty. And uh, some of the producers were like, well, you know, what about Iceman and uh, uh, Angel? And I'm like, the reason you brought me on this series is because I love these characters so much, because I'm crazy about these characters. So when I tell you that Nightcrawler and Kitty Pride are kind of like musts, I hope you'll understand this is coming from the point of view of a fan, so that I know what other fans want because I'm one of them. And so that was an argument that I got to win. It was a very easy argument to win. It wasn't like they're going to argue against Nightcrawler and Kitty, but it was something that I had to kind of push for because... I really wanted them on the team. You know, thank God they're there because they're absolutely wonderful characters who are, to me, definitive characters for the X-Men. You know, I, mm -hmm. I love Nightcrawler all to pieces. I love Kitty. You know, I'm glad they got to be there. So we are running a little bit low on time. I think we've actually managed to address almost all of the listener questions over the course of the episode. But there's one we haven't yet. And this is from Charlotte of Oz on Tumblr, who asks... X-Men fandom can be pretty intense. Do you have any stories, good or bad, about your brushes with it? 
My brushes with X-Men fandom have been uniformly wonderful. People love the characters. I worked on the X-Men animated series. Everybody loves X-Men the animated series. I helped develop X-Men Evolution. People love X-Men Evolution. So anytime I run into people and, you know, I see people dressed like the Jim Lee rogue and I'm like, hey, I worked for that series. When I see people dressed as Jubilee from that series, it's like, you know, I mentioned that I wrote for the show. They're just like, I love that show. It changed my life. This is what I'm really proud of in terms of my career. Every one of my contemporaries should be supremely proud of the fact that there is an entire section of fandom that exists because of the work that we did. I mean, there are people out there who, without X-Men... Evolution, without X-Men, the animated series, without Batman, without Gargoyles, without all of these shows, you look at all the people who are at the conventions who are in their 20s and 30s, and they're all there because they grew up in the stuff that we did. I've got one last question. Um, you've watched the series. You mentioned a couple. Is there an episode that is your favorite as your go back to a million times? This is exactly what the show is and should be for me episode. It's not a particular episode. It's more like them hitting their stride. Mm-hmm. It took a few episodes for them to kind of find their footing, but the series that we indicated in the Bible is the series that it became at the end of the first season, throughout the second season and into the third season. You know, all the episodes that were about having them, you know, trying to fit in at school, trying to figure out who they were, trying to figure out their place in the world, all the stuff around the high school, I think, was unique to the X-Men universe, and I think it's wonderful. The first handful of episodes, you really get a sense that, you know, okay, we're, we're finding our way here, we're still a little, you know, lost, but when they, they found their stride, they really found it. So, with that, we are about out of time. Bob, thank you so much for joining me, and thank you for, you know, being the second voice in my first solo-hosted episode. Well, I had a wonderful time, and thank you for having me aboard. Thank you so much. As always, Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. You can also check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, visual companions, essays, fan art, those X-Men Evolution recaps I mentioned, we are midway through season one right now, and a bunch of other stuff. This podcast is totally listener-supported, it's ad-free, and that's made possible by the fine folks who subscribe on Patreon. If you want to join those folks, you can do that at the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. We will be back next week, Miles will be back in the studio as well, and we're going to be taking a break from the three main X-titles we've been covering to take a look at a crossover miniseries from the same era, Fantastic Four vs. X-Men. X-Men.